Lord, I thank you that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Lord, I thank you that there is power in your name, that there is forgiveness in your name, that there is everlasting life in your name and in your name alone. Lord, I thank you that you give us glimpses of your glory and your grace, even in places like this. Lord, you know that we are a people who leak. We are a people who can um, li who live in a dry and weary land where there is no rest, and we need the filling of your spirit over and over again. So Lord, I thank you that you've already answered those prayers. I pray that as we continue to worship you in your word, that your word would do its sanctifying work in our lives by the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would not leave here unchanged. That, that we would know more about you having glimpsed your glory and that that would change everything about how we live. Lord, and I pray that it would all be for the glory and the fame of the name we just sang, the beautiful, majestic name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Please, sorry, I turned off my mic. Please remain standing for the reading of the word. And we all know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. So his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing... He gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Romans 8, 28-31. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Parker. You may be seated. While you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a little story while you're grabbing your Bibles and finding Romans 8. So there were these three people at the airport. And they were all getting ready to go to the same destination. They were going to fly um, to Hawaii. They were, and they were all a little bit nervous. But two of them were terrified. The first one, she was actually an engineer, and she just hated flying. She understood the science. She, she got the idea of, of how a plane that big could stay in the air for so long. The problem was um, she knew a little bit about the pilot, and she just didn't trust him. And if you know some pilots, you know that I can actually, you know, we have one here. Um, the second one, he didn't really know or care about the science because he... He just, everything in him was like, there is no way something that big can get airborne. And if it stays airborne, there is no way that it's going to stay airborne for eight hours. But he actually had gotten to know the pilot fairly well. And so he's just like kind of blind faith going, okay, I'm going to trust that whatever plane he's getting on, I'm going to trust it's going to make it whether I understand it or not. And then there was this third person. And not only did they, un they had done like research and actually studied, here's how planes work, and they had complete confidence in their aerodynamics and everything else, they also knew really well the pilot, because they had been through several flights with this pilot in the past, through storms, and he had always gotten them to their destination. So this person was actually excited about the journey they were getting ready to go on. Now out of those three people, which one enjoyed the trip? The third one, obviously. They knew, they knew about the, the plane, and they knew about the pilot. 
And so they're like, man, this is going to be a great thing. But here's the second, my second question. Out of those three people, which one made it to their destination? All three of them. Why? Because it wasn't about what they believed about the plane. It was about the plane. It wasn't about what they even believed or knew or trusted in full about the pilot. It was about the pilot. That plane was going to get to its destination because the pilot was going to take it there, whether they felt like it or not. Now you say, what, what does that have to do with Romans? The answer is, we're going to be talking today about a sovereign God. We're going to be talking about a, a God that, that if the more we get to know him, and the more we get to know the pilot, the more our trust in him grows, the stronger our faith gets, and the more we'll enjoy this present ride, even as we wait for our next destination. So what we're looking at today is we're in Romans chapter 8, the same passage we were in actually last week, Romans 8, 38. And we're going to look at this same, those same verses. I'm going to break down verses 29 and 30 a little more, more than I did last week because I didn't touch on those at all. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to trust in a completely sovereign God. And, and the title of today's message is The Mystery of Our Confirmation. Not our confirmation, our conformation. In other words, the mystery of the process by which we are conformed into the image of Christ. Because today's question is, if, if conformity to the image of Christ is God's plan for you here now. We've, we talk about that a lot here at Cross Train. And we've been talking about it a lot in Romans because that's really the reason Paul wrote Romans is to say, guys, God's plan for us is to conform us into the image of his son. The question becomes, naturally, so how does that work? Like practically for us, how does that work? And we're going to look at three pieces, um, three, three evidences in these, four, in these four verses. We're going to see that God's love is the cause of our confirmation. We're going to see that God's sovereignty is the power of our confirmation. And then we're going to see that God's power is our protection in our confirmation. Guys, we, my prayer has been this week, my prayer has been for the last few weeks as, I've thought, as I thought about how we were going to approach these four verses in this passage. My prayer has been that we would lay aside any preconceived ideas, mine too, and that we would just embrace and soak in the beauty that is the power displayed in these four verses. Guys, I, I've said before that, and, and all scripture is inspired by God. Old Testament, New Testament, if you have a red letter Bible, the red letters are no more or less inspired than the black letters. It's all inspired. But many theologians say that Romans is the most important book of the Bible because it displays the gospel in great detail. And then many of those same theologians would say that if Romans is the most important book in the Bible, Romans chapter 8 is the most important chapter in the Bible. And then many of those theologians would say if, if Romans is the, greatest, or is the most important book in the Bible and Romans 8 is the most important chapter, these four verses that we're going to look at today are perhaps the most important four verses in all of Scripture. So if you're visiting us today for the first time, Jeremiah, your beautiful family, you picked a great day to come because we're here to talk about the four most important passages or verses in all of Scripture. They are also some of the hardest to understand. And that's part of why I've called this whole section of Romans so the mystery of, righteous, of righteousness. Because we're not going to fully get 
all that Paul is saying here. But with that, let's start looking at our question and look at our first, or look at our first um, point. So the, the question we're looking at today, I'm sorry, let me start with by, by asking you um, our first talking points question. Because I, I want to make sure the sovereignty of God, may, right away people either, people either just jump in and embrace it or they bristle against it. And sometimes both um, responses can be wrong. We can embrace it almost too much, and we can also bristle against it too much. And so I wanted to start with just asking a question. So at Crosstrain, we've always believed in a God that is in control of all things and rules all things according to his will, that he is what we call completely sovereign. Guys, that has been our theology from day one as a church. We planted a church believing in the sovereignty of God. That we didn't make this up like halfway through or something. So that's the way we planted. Here's my question. Some, for, um, for some reason, people, what are some reasons that people push back against this notion of the sovereignty of God? So what are some reasons people push back against it? Jan. Okay, so if there were a good God, why does he allow evil and suffering in the world? And we've talked a little bit about that in the Romans in the Romans series, but we've also talked about it in our theology classes. It's a really it's a fair, real question. So if God is in control of all things, what in the world? Like like what like literally what in the world is going on? Okay, good. What else? Free will. Just this whole argument of so how does a completely sovereign God and our complete responsibility Sometimes called free will, and we're not going to get too far down that road today because Paul's going to pick that argument up again in Romans 9. But how do those two things match up? How can a God be in complete control of all things, and yet every person who's ever lived be completely responsible for the decisions they make? The answer is, it's a mystery. Okay, what else? Pride. Guys, honestly, a big reason we bristle against the sovereignty of God is because of pride. It's because we don't want to relinquish control. To say that God is in complete control means that I'm not, and we just don't like that as people. Right? We, we, we do not want to relinquish control to, to anyone else, not even God. And, and Paul has made that point abundantly clear in Romans as well. So I have this little thing in parentheses. What are some arguments against the doctrine of, of sovereignty of God? Free will or this idea of man's responsibility is one of them. Evil and suffering is another one of them. Um, I, I would say one of the things we can do though is maybe you're like, yeah, I, I, I do not mean need to be convinced that God is in control of all things. I have believed in God's sovereignty in all things from, from I don't know, the time I got saved. Praise the Lord. But, we, but that part, that group, that camp, has got to recognize that there is a propensity to lean into that too much. And what that can look like, I mean, there's a lot of things that it can look like, but one of those things can look like looking at people that have tragic things happen to them and go, well, you know God is sovereign, brother, so just deal with it. That is not what the sovereignty of God teaches. That's why I wanted to spend almost all of our time last week in, in Job. Because I wanted to make sure that we understood practically... From the Bible, in Job, like why when we read God works all things together for good, sometimes that does not feel good here. It doesn't feel good now. And, and when we come to people just kind of going, well, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, that is not pastoral. Jesus did not do that. So we shouldn't either. And I'll let you know a little secret. Jesus believed in the sovereignty of God because, well... He was the sovereign God. So with that, let's look at our first 
point. So we're asking the question, if our conformity is to Christ's image is the plan, how does this happen? God's love is the cause. God's love is the cause. So Romans 8.28 says, and we, we, covered, we talked about this last week, we know that for those who, are love, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And, and we talked about what that goodness looks like. We talked about how, how we see that particular passage really kind of um, informs and transforms everything about how we view life. When we see works all things together for good, do we mean now good, temporal good, my good, God's good, the world's good, who's good? And we talked a lot about that last week. If you weren't here last week, um, you can listen to the message online or on the podcast. But guys, what we ended with, if you remember, was what if we just really believed God is for us? Because verse 828 tells us that, that God is for us. And verse 31, where we ended last week, will tell us that again. Guys, Remember, and so go, this is not new theology to Paul. Go back to Romans 8. Sorry, go back to Romans 8 and verse um, 14. So just turn, I had to turn the page back, but it says, For we who are all led by the Spirit are sons or sons and daughters of God. I'm in, I'm in verse 8, 15. For we do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You, re- you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Many of you prayed that way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. But Paul didn't just think that. John did too. In 1 John 3, John says, the, the Apostle John in 1 John 3, he says, Do you not see what a great love the Father has bestowed upon us? That we are called children of God. Now we also have to read 1 John 4, 1, where he says, the only reason we love God, those who love God and are called according to his purpose, is because he first loved us. Right? So th- there is real, there's real tension, real truth to that. But guys, look at, keep your finger in Romans. We're going to come back here. Look at John 3, 16. Somebody prayed it. Somebody read it and then prayed it. John 3, 16. Most of you could quote it. It's probably the, most, the best known passage. Most pastors don't like to turn to it, including this one right now, because it feels like the easy out, right, honestly. But then I stop and go, wait a minute, it's a beautiful truth. Why would I not want to turn to John 3.16? So look at John 3.16. It says, for God so, remember, our point we're making is that, that, <coughs> that God's love is the cause that moves this whole mission of conformity forward. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomever would believe in him would never perish, but have everlasting life. Now we'll read verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Guys, that's God's heart. That is God's heart for the world. God so loved the world. Even if you don't feel, remember, but there are times, we talked about this last week, and I really wanted to lay that foundation about what this what this theology can feel like what the orthodoxy can feel like is man it doesn't feel very loving job didn't think so either and we'll come back around to job here today as well but we got we got we want to filter all of this we don't want to leave behind last week's message and go now let's just talk about some solid theology it takes a balance of both but here's the thing so there's some solid theology here in, in John 3:16 and 17 there's also some solid god's heart issue god so loved the world Whether you feel like it or not, I quoted Spurgeon last week. When you cannot trace God's hand, when you are looking at yourself going, I have no idea why this happened to me. The only fallback is to just trust God's heart. It's to just go, I I have to trust 
that God is going to work this together for good. I may not see it right now, just like Job didn't, but I'm going to trust it. Because that's the card he's asked me to play. Look at your second talking points question. So I talked, before you, before you read it, I, I talked about, like, like, Job last week, we talked about how all these bad things happen to Job. He loses everything. And then it says that um, at the beginning, he kind of stays strong. You know, though he slay me, I'll hope in him. But then you remember in Job 30, verse 21, he says, you have turned cruel to me. Like, like he's actually starting to waver and, and starting to get a little, eh. And, and that is a real, th- and, and why I wanted to spend that time last week is, guys, most of us, if you've walked with Jesus at any length, for any length of time, most of you have felt that. In fact, a lot of people who walk away from the faith, so to speak, um, walk away because they, they're like, you know what, I went through a hard time and I don't feel like Jesus was helping me. That's where we have to draw back on our theology of today. So, so what Paul, or what, what, what Job had to do when he got to that, you have turned cruel to me, is he had to draw from the theology of who God is. And because he got into a dark place where he wasn't doing that anymore, remember what happens in Job 38? God shows up and goes, okay, you want to question why this is happening to me? Let's talk. Let me remind you of who I am. Let me remind you of the theology that I'm in control of all things. So look at what it says. At Crosstrain, we don't believe in the best life now prosperity gospel. We don't want our best life here and now. We want our best life there and then for eternity. So what is a better, more biblical way to reflect on the phrase, God works all things together for good? What is a better way to say that? To conform us into the image of Christ, which is where Paul's going to go next in our passage. Good. What else? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which is speaking towards a where. Have, like perfect and complete, we know that doesn't happen down here in this kingdom. It happens in the kingdom we've only been partially transferred to. Good. So all things together for good is an eternal perspective. And as my brother Jesse always says, we have a perspective problem. We are, I am, you are, we are very myopic. We think about today, we think about next week, we think about maybe next, maybe we're thinking about next year, but we're certainly not thinking about eternity. And when we get there, we're going to be like, oh, I should have given this a lot more thought. Like I should have, I should have given this a lot more attention in my life. Guys, the only way this works, though, to see like God works all things together for good, is if we really believe that those last couple of songs that we sang. Do we really believe Jesus is better? Do we really believe Jesus is more beautiful? Do we really believe that if, if the goal is to get us to glory looking like Jesus, that that's the best thing we could look like? Do we really believe that? Because then we'll be like, hey, the one that receives scars on the cross on my behalf, if I'm going to look like him, maybe I need to get some scars too. Right? And, and that gives us a better perspective. So look at our second point. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time today is in the second point so if conformity is the goal how does it work well first of all God's love is the cause second of all God's sovereignty is the power and you can actually almost flip those God's power is the sovereignty right like like both they come get because God is completely sovereign he has to be in complete completely powerful look at um, so I'm back well I'm not actually back in Romans 8 28 and 20 or 29 and 30 look at what he says 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is often called the golden chain of redemption. Because it's, it, it is the gospel in a nutshell in those two verses about, how, about like the mechanism by which God moves us from an, like un, non-existent to existing, to being called into his family, to eventually being glorified. And we're going to look at each of those points here in a little bit of detail. But guys, if you got the In the Word today, today, which is the devotional I send out every day to everybody that signs up for it. If you got the devotional, I don't know if you remember what I said was the thing that, what, what grieves me most about this passage? Anybody remember what I wrote? Thank you for reading it. That, so most of you need to probably get out your phones right now. And go to our church's website and sign up for the daily devotional in the Word today. Because here's what I wrote, something to the effect of, the thing that grieves me most about this passage is that we get lost in the theology and we lose the beauty. So Father, I come to you right now, Lord, and I want to pray that as we, as we dive into the theology that does matter and is important, that it would, on, that it would do only one thing, and that that would help us um, see you for the, the sovereign, powerful, beautiful loving God that you are. That as, that as jo, my sister Jody prayed, that you will finish what you start. That's what this passage is about. So I pray that, that, would do, that you, your word would do its work right now in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, this is the gospel, right? Like right here in this passage, this is the gospel, right? And, and remember what, remember this is, again, not new theology. If you just want to turn back to Romans 1, 16 and 17, so the very beginning of the letter, do you remember what Paul says about the gospel? He says, in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It is the what of God? It is the power of God. The point we're making here is that God's sovereignty is the what? The power. The message, Paul is going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And he's pulling this whole thing forward. He says, in the gospel, the, the what is revealed? The righteousness of God. And we're going to see, he's using all of these terms in these two verses. Because he's saying, guys, this golden chain of redemption, for not for new predestined, predestined, called, called, um, justified, justified, glorified. That, that whole chain is the gospel story. It is what God is doing. It's what God has done in your life. It's what God is doing in the world. It's... Um, but before we dive into what all those little words mean, I want to ask you a question. Who was responsible for crucifying Christ? Okay, I heard a me. I heard an I. Okay, I don't mean for, for him having to be crucified. I mean, because here's the thing. Guys, when we start thinking about theology, and this is good. We, we think ortho, we start thinking right, right away we go to orthopraxy. And, and like, like, what does that, like in, our, in my life, in practice, what does that look like? And that's good and right. But let's, let's also just think about in God's plan in the world. God created Adam and Eve in his image. The image was marred because of our rebellion. God's plan is to restore that image back in the garden. That's, that's, that is the, the, um, the, the narrative of Scripture from beginning to end. He is eventually going to bring these two kingdoms back together in perfection. That's the, so, so in the midst of that story, there are some exclamation points, like Jesus getting crucified. 
Who was responsible for that? Was it Judas? Was, but but just think about this. Was it, was it the Jews? Because we blame them, right? You read the story, you blame them. Was it Pilate? Was it even Judas? The answer is it was God. Because if we don't now, now, there are people that, this is where that pushback against the sovereignty of God, people start going, well, wait a minute, what's that about? Guys, just, I'm just talking practically, practically speaking. And Galatians 4 makes clear, in in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. He picked the time that Jesus was gonna come. Unless God is in control of all of those moving pieces, the Roman Empire, who's their pilot, Judas, unless he's in control of all of that, he left to chance, unless he's in control of that, he left to chance that Jesus was going to get crucified. Would God do that? Of course not. Now, here's the, here's the kicker, guys. Is Judas right now where in hell going, God put me here? No. Is Pilate, if Pilate is in hell, going, God put me here? No. Are, the, are even the Pharisees that rejected Christ, and, and guys, we've got to realize this. Christ, who, who does Christ hold responsible for their rejection? Does he go, oh, I really feel bad for you because my father predestined in eternity past that you were going to reject me. Does he say that? No. He blames them. Why? Because they're completely responsible. They are completely responsible, just like you and I, just like every person who's ever lived, they are completely responsible for what they do with the gospel. And at the same time, God is completely sovereign over the fact that Judas was going to betray Jesus because he had to, to fulfill God's story. And the story is about Jesus, not about Judas. How do those two things work? I have no idea. That's the mystery. There are things in Romans, there are things in theology that are really clear. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is not one of them. But what we don't want to do is shove either of them away. We don't want to get too far into either camp. And and ultimately we're going to see more of that as we go along in these verses. So let's jump into verse 29 and we're going to take a look at... Now here's what's interesting about verses 29 and 30. There are these words, justified, predestined, called... Just, or, I'm sorry, foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They are, in the Greek, they are all written in the exact same tense of the verb. It's called the aorist tense in, in Greek. So it's not past tense. It's not present tense. It's not future tense. All of those, all those words, that golden chain, they're all written in what's called the aorist, which just means time is inconsequential. Why? Because we think of the golden chain of redemption. God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. What did I just do right there? I linearized it. It's a chain. Chains have links. Links are like, right? Is God, does God function that way? No. God does not function that way. God is outside of time. So he, so Paul writes this in this, in that turn, in the, tense in Greek that says, this is not about when these things happen. This is just about the truth that they do happen. And, and oh, by the way, about the truth of who's in charge of them happening. And that's God. And so, again, when I've taught on this before, and I've taught on the sovereignty of God, I've taught on this passage many times in our 11 years. 
the analogy I give is, do anybody remember what the analogy is I give for, for how God communicates these, these mysterious truths to us? What is it? The dog and the trainer. I've even shown pictures up there like a person training a dog. When a trainer wants to train a dog, they use terms the dog is going to quickly understand. Sit, heal, attack, whatever those things are. I'm not a dog trainer. He doesn't sit down and explain why this, is ha- why this needs to happen. He doesn't talk about the purpose. He doesn't explain the backstory he, because, because the dog isn't going to get it. Now, in that analogy of the trainer and the dog, what, what do we have to remember? We're the dog. And here's the other part we have to remember. We are more like the dog, like practically, literally practically, you have more in common with the dog than the trainer does with God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That, that, that's, what Paul, that's what God says in Isaiah. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. For those of you that are in the training center, props for that, right? We have, we have to get, we have to understand that, now at the same time, to just go, well, since I'll never understand it, I'm not going to worry about it. That's to get on the plane without knowing anything about how the plane functions. That, that gets, that's getting on the plane going, I don't, I'm not going to appreciate it as much because I don't understand how, I, don't, I, I haven't even studied how it works. The more you understand these theological truths, the stronger your relationship with Christ is. I, you may be sitting here today going, no, that's just not my thing. I'm telling you, that's been God's people's thing since the church started. And so, so we don't just want to go, well, doctrine divides, and I just want to, no. Right? We, well, we'll get there in a minute. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So look at, look at verse 29. For those who he foreknew, he predestined. The word foreknowledge there is the word prognosko in Greek. It's where we get this idea of prognosis. But here's what it means. It means to, it means to know beforehand. But in, every time it's used in, in, the, in um, the New Testament, it's used with the idea of to know personally. In other words, it's not to know about an upcoming event. It's not to know the timing and sequence. It's to actually know, like, I know my wife or I know Zach. It's that kind of know. So what, what, it says, what it's not saying is, we got to get this, what, it is, what foreknowledge is not saying is that God looked ahead in time, saw who was going to choose him, and then came back and chose them. Guys, that was unheard of in church history for 1,600 years. The concept that foreknowledge was this idea that God looked ahead in time, chose, saw who was going to actually respond to him, and now has chosen them throughout history, was unheard of in church history for 1,600 years. That is a re- that, in, in church history, that's a relatively new theology. And, and, and I understand where it comes from. It comes from this idea of, like, like, how do we not blame God for what's going on in the world? How do we wrestle at the same time everybody's responsible? Right? But, but we don't want to come up with bad theology just to try to help make sense of the theology that we don't understand. The other thing it does not mean is foreknowledge does not mean God went like this. In, out. In, out. And that leads us to our next point. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. And that word predestined actually means, is actually the word pro, it's um, prohorzio. It actually means to determine beforehand. 
So what predestination does mean is that God, before the foundation of the world, God said, I am going to determine who I'm saving. Now, what it never means in Scripture is I'm going to determine who I'm not saving. Now, in, our, in my brain, what, immediately, I, what, do I, what are you thinking right now? If God determined who's saved, then by definition, he determined who's not saved. But Scripture never says that. How, what determined who's not saved? Rebellion. Right? Our rebellion is what gets people into, is what gets us to hell. Now, in Romans 9, Paul's going to talk about why he didn't save everybody. That's called universalism, and the progressive church is preaching that today. That's how they're getting rid of hell. That's how they're getting rid of judgment, is they're just saying, well, God saved everybody. That is not biblical. The idea of, in fact, in fact the very next word actually says, for those who he predestined, and here, remember, well, before I get to the next word of called, um, Adam mentioned it. He did, he did this. He foreknew, predestined them to an end. What is the end? To be conformed into the image of his son. Guys, don't turn there. And I'm not going to have you turn there. I was going to have you turn there. I'm not going to have you turn there today. But guys, just write down Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. We, t- we turned there a couple weeks ago, so don't turn there again today. I, and, I think that, and maybe you even read it this last week. Ephesians 1, 3 through 12. Guys, it clearly tells us that, God pre- that you are predestined in Christ before the foundation of the world. And yet, I've, I've read new commentaries in the last two weeks studying this. Guys, what is clear from all of the Greek scholars that I appreciate and understand is, what is clear is that God never predestined anybody to hell we did that on our own what he did was said okay to demonstrate my grace i'm going to save some of you why didn't god save everybody i don't know i'm not i mean god um paul will give us some answers in romans 9 but i still look at it and i go would i have done it that way probably not but there's a lot of things about god that i look at and go would i have done it that way so those who he, he foreknew he predestined those he predestined he called the word called there is echolason. What's that word sound like in Greek? For those of you that know, what, what's the word for church? Echolasia. It just means called out ones. It's the same. It's, it's Ephesians 1. It's, guys, here's what's, here's what's interesting. Keep your finger right here. We're going to come right back to it. Go to Romans 1. Because this idea of foreknowledge and especially predestined and called is throughout scripture. And, and you're going to read some of those scriptures this week in your daily readings that you get in the devotional. Um, when I've taught on this before, I've gone into more detail on this. But look at uh, Romans 1 and look at verse 7. So, this is, a, so Paul, this is Paul's really long introduction to this really long letter. And in verse 7 he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... Grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, we will see that kind of terminology throughout Scripture and never blink. Until we start going, like we read that, we go, because when I read that, I go, yeah, I'm in there. And then we start having this wrestle we're having today about the theology of how, of, of how all this works together and how God is sovereign over all of it. Paul's clearly saying in the beginning of the letter, if you're if you're, if you're in Christ, you were called by God to be in Christ. 
And at the same time, we'll read that and go, yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's how it works. Again, does not in any way negate the fact that we ha- each of us individually has a responsibility to respond to the call. How that, I don't know how that works. I just know it does. And I'm just going to keep saying that. So last, so last, couple, last couple words. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Guys, ju- th- turn to Romans 5 for justified. We've taught on this. I've, we've, we've come back to this passage over and over because it's a beautiful truth. After Paul kind of explains the problem of sin in Romans 1 through 4 or 1 through 3, and then in Romans 4 starts giving us the plan of salvation through, and talks about Abraham and through the seed. Then he says, therefore, since we have been justified, it's just dikaio, it's righteous. We've been made righteous by faith. Faith is our believing in the promise. There's our responsibility in it. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Here's what's interesting about these words. So you think about these words. Foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. If I were to say to almost any Christian I know, because I see some of you are checking out, and you're like, I've heard this. Guys, do not hear something I'm not saying. Right? And if you have questions, I want to encourage you to talk to me about them afterwards. But don't hear something I'm not saying. But here's what's it. I do, just be open. Be, if I were to say to you, who justified you? I don't know a Christian, a, Bible, a Christian that spends any time in the Word or any time at church that would say, well, I did. We would all say, God did. And then, but if I said, okay, but did you completely justify you or did, did God do most or did he do it most or did he do most of it and you had to do a little justifying? We would say, no, it's all, my justification is all God. Otherwise, the cross is not, doesn't really finish the job. I don't know a Christian that would deny that. Let's go back to Romans 8. This is what, part of why they call this the golden chain of redemption. We can't just pick one word out like justified and go, that was all of God. But all the other words in the chain have something to do with us. Every one of those words is all of God. Now, just like justified, where it says you were justified by faith. By what? By believing in the promise. There's that responsibility piece. There's, there's this part of, a, of, of it that, does not, that God's sovereignty does not get, negate. And at the same time, what we can't do is go, well, because I don't like the idea of predestined or called, I'm going to say there is where we really had to interact with God, but over here in justification, I didn't have to do anything. We have to, it's called a hermeneutic, and it's how you approach Scripture, and you've got to be consistent. So either say, all of these words we have something to do with, or say, all of these words are in complete, like God's sovereign control, even as... We have responsibility in fulfilling the plan. Eh, I don't know how it works. I just, like I said, going to keep saying that. And then the la- here's the beautiful part. And the last one is, and those whom he justified, he glorified. And here's what I love, guys. And here's, here's another reason I want to hang on to keep treating all the words the same. Glor- this, many scholars say that this might be Paul's most bold statement in any of his letters, that he did glorify. It's not written in the future tense. It doesn't say he will glorify. It says he did. Same tense as the rest of them. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. It's a done deal. 
And if it's not a done deal, then the cross didn't work. Now, again, I want that. I want our point. The sovereignty is the power. The power is the sovereignty. I want God to finish the deal. I don't want to do it. And you shouldn't either. I don't want to get lost in all the details just as much as you don't want to get lost in all the details. So don't. The point here is God will finish what God started. That's the chain. Now how you deal with that, like, like how you live in that is okay. But just remember, we're not God. Don't bring him down to our level. Talk him up. Look at your last talking points question. And our last point goes fast. We're actually going to use it to go into our time of response here in just a minute. But look at your last talking points question. Because you're like, because some of you are going, I don't even believe this. I can't believe he's even teaching this. Some of you are going, and some of you are like, I have no idea what he's teaching. Those people I could understand, actually, because I'm not sure I understand right now what's going on. But some of you are going, like, like some of you are going, um, why even talk about it? Like, why even bring this kind of stuff up? And I mentioned it a minute ago, and this point makes the point, so I'm just going to read it. At Crosstrain, we believe a strong orthodoxy, that sound doctrine that knows what, not just what we believe, but why we believe it, leads to solid orthopraxy, the practice and outward effect of what we believe. Guys, churches that preach light Christianity are the churches that are, that are walking away from the gospel, Right? We, we have got to know, not, we have to know who we believe, Paul says, and really know him. And the more you get to know him, the more beautiful he becomes, including the parts of him that you look at and you go, thank you, Lord, that you're so much bigger than I am, that even as I dive into these ideas, I can't understand them, because you're a God bigger than that. If I can make sense of it in my theology 100%, then you're probably not really God, And it says, but don't get lost in the theology of Romans 8, 29, and 30. Instead, bask in the rescuing glory of God's sovereignty. How can reflecting on this, and I'm not going to, don't answer out loud. I just want to stop here and let you kind of think. How might basking in the sovereignty of God, regardless of where you are, where you walked in, like I totally believe in it, I, I don't even understand it, I don't believe in it at all. How could reflecting on it actually strengthen your faith with Christ? Just think about some ways that that might work as we go into our last point. Our last point is, so, so God is going to finish what he started. What did he start? He who began a good work in you will complete it. Philippians 1.6. He's saying, I started, this, I started you on this mission before the foundation of the world. Paul tells us, I started you on this mission. And I will complete it to glorification. Right? And, and he's like, and how, do we, how does that happen? Because I love you that much. That's our first point. Because I'm that powerful. That's our second point. And the last thing is, praise the Lord that his love and his power is where we get our protection. Because it's not up to us. Look at what he says in verse 31. He says, and those, I'm sorry, so after the golden chain in verse 31, he says, when, what then shall we say to these things? If God is, if, the, if God, now read, I want you to read it this way. If that God because we, we make a break here in verse, in, in verse 31. And we'll actually pick it up in verse 31 when we, get, when we um, finish out the rest of the chapter. But our, our Bibles break this here. He's continuing the thought. He's saying in light of the sovereignty of God and the power to save. He's saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? He's like, guys, if Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Guys, we, I want those things to be true. And they are. They're in the Bible. I need those things to be true at times in my life. Like, I need to cling to those truths. Those things can only be true if verses 29 and 30 are also true. Does not mean we understand the mechanics of how they all work. It does mean we have to rest in going, the only way there is really no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the only way God can really work all things together for good, the only way he, he can make sure nothing can ever be against us is if he's in control of all things. Guys, that's what Job showed us. Who was in charge of Satan? God. Who allowed it to happen to Job? God. Did God have a purpose in it? Yeah, it was for Job's eternal glory and in, t- and in the minute we start to unhinge ourselves from the from the theology of Romans 28 and 20 or 29 and 30 we have we start cra- we start actually cracking the ground on which we're standing in Romans 8 28 and 31 we have to re- whether we understand it or not and I don't we have to rest in going God is in complete control and we need him to be as the music team comes up that's how i want you to respond we're gonna i'll come back up and lead us through communion but guys i want you to think about like how is it what does it feel like to cling to that god what does it feel like to to actually know that that i can get to a place in my life like job 30 21 and say you have become cruel to me but also hold on to the truth of Job 19.25. This I know. My Redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. Like what does that look like to cling to those things? Because what does it look like in Isaiah chapter 40? God tells Isaiah, look up at the stars. Count them if you can. I have called them all forth one by one, naming them as I did. Here's what he's saying to to, to Isaiah. He's saying to us through Isaiah today. I am powerful enough that I speak galaxies out of my mouth. And then like two chapters later, you know what he says to Isaiah? Do not fear, because I've called you by name too. Do you see that? I'm so powerful, I speak galaxies into existence, and I call you by name. I call you by name. I call you by name. And when I call you by name, nothing can take you away. Jesus, in John 6, Jesus makes this so clear. He says, all those the Father will give me will come to me, and I will not lose one of them. That's the power. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the beautiful truth. I thank you for the truth that, that we can rest in something we don't understand. And in fact even draw strength from the fact that we don't understand it. That because you are our God so big, we're just the dog. It's, it makes you all the more worthy of our worship. 
Lord, I want to pray that, that you would remind us that, that our security is not found in ourselves. It's not found in, in what we think or do. It's, it, it's, it is found in you alone. That we are called according to your purpose. That we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb because that's what you have seen fit to do. Lord, let us, let us draw strength from that. Lord, let, let us not get lost in, in trying to figure it all out or make sense of it and just enjoy, but, but, but also enjoy the reality that your power is over all things. And so we need not fear. That for your story to be true, for your story to come to its full fruition in truth, you have to be in control, not us. Lord, I pray for those of us that have not fully surrendered our hearts to that truth. But I pray that for those that are still trying to do things in their own strength, whether it's earn your salvation or just somehow earn our sanctification. I pray that we would just rest in saying the cross is enough. It is finished. That you, through a single offering, perfected once for all time those who are being sanctified. It's this great dilemma, Lord. I get it. I don't get it. I get that I don't get it. With my brothers and sisters in Christ, we say it together. We don't fully understand it, but let us fully embrace it. Let us embrace the truth that we serve a sovereign Savior who stands at the right hand of God in control of everything and at the same time holds us with his pierced hands. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Father, I, I, do, I, I pray that, that, that that name wouldn't just be a name that we would speak. Or, or tag on to the end of a prayer. I pray that that name would mean what it really means. That you are the sovereign one. The beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us that our good is for your glory. In Jesus' name. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong